Good morning to each of you. Uh, yesterday, I want to say to thank all of you, each of you, for uh, participating, helping. So, uh, when I was a child, teenager, uh, the way the way we did things together was, uh, uh, well, okay, so there were maybe uh, 10 families, I don't know, 12, maybe. Um, and uh, three, four, let's see, a third of the people farmed dairy farms and field silo together. So the way you had um, maybe community life, part of it, was uh, work together from uh, the 20th or 22nd or 3rd of August until just depended, maybe the 1st of October, to do this thing together. And uh, that was, uh, well, unique. Got to know each other in a different way than going to church and shaking hands, whatever. So uh, yesterday just reminded me of uh, doing things together. And uh, <clears throat> maybe, maybe, maybe we would decide, could decide to do that sort of thing on a regular basis, not because we want to raise money, but because we want to do something together. But of course, we would have to recover between each one, so I understand. Um, so I feel, uh, I'll put it this way, a lot of responsibility. Uh, as I've gotten older, and uh, maybe especially as the head pastor of this church, um, to do what I can to help us uh, be firmly grounded in, I'm trying to choose my words, to be firmly grounded in biblical doctrine. And I'm not saying we haven't been, I'm just saying that that does concern me. And then uh, to implement practices uh, in the life of the church that um, express those doctrines and beliefs and help us achieve goals that are connected to that. So this morning we are partaking of the Lord's Supper. And uh, I'm going to start here by saying something that I hope is not uh, overly critical or um, negative. Um, I want to clarify the meaning of the Lord's Supper as it's spoken of in Scripture. And I'm, I'm not claiming this morning that I um, understand everything about it, and I'm not 
are claiming to be the final authority uh, on the meaning of the Lord's Supper. But I want, I do want to address what I would say is a weakness. I, what I would understand to be a weakness in the, um, I guess I'll use the word traditional, um, way Mennonites have talked about the Lord's Supper. And, what I'm referring to is the view from 1525 to the present that the Lord's Supper is nothing more than a uh, memorial. And I'm, I'm using the words nothing more intentionally. And that may be slightly exaggerated, but I don't think too much. Um, that it's, it's nothing more than a memorial uh, and that view grew out of a reaction to an opposition to, I will name three other views. And I'm not going to elaborate on them, but as opposed to the Catholic view that the bread and wine are uh, transfigured into the body, literal body and blood of Christ, or the Lutheran view that Christ's body and blood are attached to uh, the bread and wine, um, or the Reformed view, Calvin's view, others reform, view that Christ is spiritually present when the Lord suffers partaken of. So I just want to say in the beginning that um, even if you reject all those non-Anabaptist Mennonite beliefs, I'm convinced that uh, Scripture speaks of Christ being present. Um, that that the Lord's Supper is more than a memorial, and I will explain in particular what I mean by that, uh, especially toward the end of this sermon. So I began by reading Matthew 26, 26 to 28. And as they were eating, Jesus took bread, blessed and broke it, and gave it to the disciples and said, Take eat, this is my body. Then he took the cup and gave thanks and gave it to them, saying, Drink from it, all of you, for this is my blood of the new covenant, which is shed for many for the remission of sins. And then Luke twenty-two seventeen to 22. Then he took the cup and gave thanks and said, Take this and divide it among yourselves. For I say to you, I will not drink of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. And he took bread, gave thanks, and broke it, and gave it to them, saying, This is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Likewise, he also took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood which is shed for you. And behold, 
The hand of my betrayer is with me on the table, and truly the Son of Man goes as it has been determined. But woe to that man to whom, by whom he is betrayed. So the meaning of the Lord's Supper, I have three um, main points. The first one is, when we participate in the Lord's Supper, we participate in the blood and body of Christ. We participate in, we commune with the body and blood of Christ. And 1 Corinthians 10:16 says, the cup of blessing which we bless, is it not the communion of the blood of Christ? And the bread which we break, is it not the communion of the body of Christ? So the word, the Greek word translated communion is koinonia. And the meaning of koinonia is having in common. Having in common or partnership or fellowship or participation in, communion, to have in common, be in partnership, be in fellowship, participate in. And the meaning of koinonia with the body and blood of Christ is um, something like this. That when we partake of the Lord's Supper, we are in communion with or fellowship with or participate in the body and blood of Christ. Okay, so what does that mean? It may be, I want to say, I'm not sure what all that means, but it speaks of the idea that we are participating in the work God did in Christ on the cross. We are identifying with his work on the cross for us. We are expressing our need of it, receiving it for our need. We we are experiencing in ourselves whatever it is that that Christ's death on the cross for our sins is intended to meet us in or help us in, such as forgiveness of sins. Um, we, we are in communion with, in fellowship with, participating with Christ. And, and this, this is, whatever this is, it's not just something that we do in our heads by ourselves. It is something that God, the Holy Spirit, Jesus, is doing inside of us. Um, 
during our um, participation in the Lord's Supper, that we, we are experiencing a work inside us connected to Christ's work for us on the cross. And we are remembering that Christ bore our sins to the cross so he could forgive us, so we could be forgiven and delivered from them. And we are participating in the reality of the broken body and shed blood. So maybe an illustration of this idea, I think we have an illustration of this in Romans 6, 1 to 6 which is not talking about the Lord's Supper. It talks about uh, being baptized into Christ. I'm not sure that that's talking about water baptism, but it's talking about identifying fully with Christ. Identifying fully with Christ in his death and resurrection. And experiencing in our person a work that God wants to do because we are identifying with Christ in his work for us in his death. And those verses say that when you identify with Christ in that way, His death is worked in you. And his resurrection is worked in you. So, in your identification with Christ, with his death and resurrection, and you surrender to his death and resurrection, yield to it, participate in it, it is worked in you in a way that that you die and rise with Christ. And it says that if this is happening for you and in you, you will live a new life. Somehow this action in you of God working, it will result in you being able to live a new kind of life. And the idea there is that this activity of God in which you die and rise is happening not only, it happens not only When you are converted, it doesn't actually say there anything about being converted. It's not talking about regeneration. But other places talk about dying with Christ in conversion and being reborn. But it's talking there primarily about in the moments of life, when you're tempted, you identify with Christ and, and he, he dies you, and uh, this is not good English. He dies you and rises you. He dies you and raises you in the moment of struggle. And this, this is the illustration, I believe, of what 
of what Jesus is talking about and Paul is talking about in this idea of being in communion with, being in partnership with, participating with, that the death, we experience the death and resurrection of Christ inside us. We participate in the blood and body of Christ. We, we experience in our person the, the blood, broken body and shed blood of Christ. And maybe I cannot and you cannot maybe explain, um, altogether what, what Christ body and blood broke the breaking of his body and the shedding of his blood on the cross maybe we cannot in detail explain that and intellectually figure it out but in our participating in the lord's supper and in his work in our hearts in our understanding that we, we are participating in the body and blood of Christ. He is able in our surrender to that, yielding to it, and inviting, inviting God, inviting Jesus, inviting the Holy Spirit to do a work in us in relation to the body and blood of Christ. I believe that something can be done inside of us I'll just say that we are not in control of. And I think in spiritual things, the things we're not in control of work better than the things we are in control of many times. And I'll come back to that later. So my second point is when we participate in the Lord's Supper, we are strengthened and sustained. And this is true when we participate, uh, communicate, communion, commune with Christ at any time. We, we feast on and we are strengthened by Jesus Christ. And I will say in the same way that people, um, that People who were with Jesus when he was in the world, physically present. And in his speaking with them and ministering to them, they, they were uh, strengthened, instructed. And this, this is the promise we have, that when we commune with Christ at any time this happens and and I'm going to say when we participate in the Lord's Supper, especially this happens. We can be strengthened spiritually. And <clears throat> I've experienced that uh, during communion. And I am fairly sure that many of you have too. So John 6, 51 to 58, I am the living bread which came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. 
uh, <clears throat> so the thought comes to me, I don't think that's talking about a one-time eating. It's talking about an ongoing eating. And the bread that I shall give him, shall give is my flesh, which I shall give for the life of the world. The Jews therefore quarreled among themselves, saying, How can this man give us his flesh to eat? Then Jesus said to them, Most assuredly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up at the last day. For my flesh is food indeed, and my blood is drink indeed. He who eats my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me, and I in him. As the living Father sent me, and I live because of the Father, so he who feeds on me will live because of me. This is the bread which came down from heaven, not as your fathers ate the manna and are dead. He who eats this bread will live forever. These are uh, somewhat challenging verses. Uh, I do not believe that Jesus is speaking about the Lord's Supper in these verses. Uh, but Jesus is speaking about believing in him, about feasting on him, about fellowship or communion, participating with him. He is speaking about a deep fellowship with him that uh, sustains the soul. Enlivens the soul. In verse 51, Jesus says, He is the bread of life who came down from heaven. And the person who believes in me will neither hunger nor thirst. He says, He is the living bread which came down from heaven. And the person who eats will live forever. And unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. And, of course, uh, the New Testament, the, the Bible, is clear that there is no life apart from the life of Jesus for us, given for us. So if the words of Jesus about eating his flesh and drinking his blood are not speaking of eating of Jesus' literal flesh and drinking his literal blood, they most certainly speak of deep fellowship and communion with Jesus. I mean, the words are very striking, perhaps even offensive. 
I'm being somewhat blunt here. Perhaps the words even sound cannibalistic. And I want to say, at the least, they are speaking of deep fellowship and communion with Jesus. And I'm convinced that that Jesus offers himself to each believer in this way. Not, not just at the Lord's Supper, but every moment of life. <clears throat> and I realize for myself and for each of us that it's... Um, hard, maybe impossible, to live in that kind of awareness and actually hit the nail with the hammer at the same time, or drive maybe a straight line with the tractor and drill, or keep your vehicle in the road. I'm just saying that I recognize that that it that it is hard, probably impossible, to be that engrossed in fellowship with Jesus while you're trying to live your life and do things that require concentration on physical things. I recognize that, and I don't think, I do not believe that Jesus is expecting us to get our communion with and fellowship and participation with him in relationship perfected in that way. I don't believe that's what he's asking for. But certainly he's talking about something real and possible, uh, something that we can engage in with him while we are living our life and experiencing uh, our human challenges. And we all are. Everyone is. We all do experience our human challenges. So Jesus is offering himself to us for this kind of spiritual feasting every day in every situation. And certainly when we partake of the Lord's Supper, at the least, these verses mean that. When we partake of the Lord's Supper, we are feasting on Christ spiritually. And I want to say at the least, we can each give Christ permission to, I don't know what words to use, maybe rejuvenate, energize. us with his life as we partake of the Lord's Supper. At least we can uh, give him permission to work that in us. Uh, Because Christ works in miraculous, mysterious ways to communicate his grace and mercy and life to us 
and again, especially when we are not um, overly busy uh, trying to control something or make it happen in our heads. <clears throat> and forgive me, I know all of this can be rather difficult. It's a little bit like things that we think about that we don't want to think about, and the more we don't want to think about it, we think about it. And uh, sometimes when I think about things like that, I think I cannot wait to get to the next life when I will not have to worry about how all of these things happen. I don't think I'll be preoccupied with figuring anything out. I need to stop there with that. My third point is when we participate in the Lord's Supper, we experience koinonia or partnership or fellowship with other believers. And we have this in 1 Corinthians 11, 20 to 22. Therefore, when you come together in one place, it is not to eat the Lord's Supper. And what's being said there is when, when, when the Corinthians were coming together to eat the Lord's Supper, they weren't really celebrating it in the way Christ intended the Lord's Supper to be celebrated. He's saying to them, that's not really what you're celebrating. Something's wrong. For in eating, and here's why, for in eating, each one takes his own supper ahead of others, and one is hungry and another is drunk. What? Do you not have houses to eat and drink in, or do you despise the church of God and shame those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I praise you in this? I do not praise you. So the context here deals with the celebration of the Lord's Supper and also the celebration of what we would call nowadays a love feast, which they had prior to the celebration of the Lord's Supper. And he says that he cannot praise them because of the way they come together for the Lord's Supper, for the meal and then the Lord's Supper. He says they have factions among them. Uh, it's the idea of fighting and parties like us and them divided up into uh, clans or cliques. That's one thing. They don't wait for each other during their love feast prior to the Lord's Supper. Uh, disrespectful. And they don't share with each other, so they're selfish. Um, and apparently the, the, what's happening here is that there are the haves and the have-nots. There are those people who have food to bring to the 
I will just use the term the potluck to the love feast. There are some who have something to bring, maybe more to bring, and there are others who don't have as much or maybe nothing. And apparently what he's describing is that those who have, have, those who have. Uh, they go first and, and they eat what they have. And those who have not eat what's left, which is very little or nothing or whatever it is. And Paul is saying something is really wrong here in this whole picture. Now, um, I just want to say, I asked Mary Sue, I think this morning, if we were having a meal after communion today, and she said, yes. <clears throat> and, and then she said that uh, she thought the reason for this had something to do with me uh, telling someone or telling the ladies, I don't know, um, that, that it would really be nice if we had uh, lunch together after communion. <clears throat> and I was going to get up here in this sermon, and I was going to commend whoever's responsible here for the meal for uh, managing to have it on communion Sunday. Uh, so she said what she said, and I didn't ask her any more questions, but apparently I'm the one who's responsible for this. And I didn't, I don't remember doing it. Uh, and maybe whoever I said that to remembers. But I'm thanking us because I think it's appropriate. I think this is what happened in the early church, and that doesn't mean we have to do that, but I like it. So Paul is admonishing them and correcting them for a problem they have that, yes, they're, they're trying to do this good thing, but they have this problem. Uh, the problem of having factions and the problem of the haves and the have-nots and the disrespect that's going on and the selfishness in all during this meal and the Lord's Supper. And Paul says that these sins prove that they are not eating in remembrance of Christ. They are not discerning the Lord's body, or they're not discerning, um, they're not practicing a communion of the body and blood of Christ. They're not, they're not understanding the meaning of Christ's broken body and shed blood and the unselfishness of it and the giving of himself for us, they just are not understanding this. They're not discerning the meaning of it. So in these verses, Paul is correcting the Corinthians for violating the meaning of the Lord's Supper. In 1 Corinthians 10, it's another passage, not chapter 11, 
Paul emphasizes that believers who partake of the same bread and cup of the Lord's Supper, the same bread and cup. Though many are one bread and one body, for we all partake of that one bread. Uh, and that's a truth then that Paul uses to instruct them in verses 23 to 33 in 1 Corinthians 10 that they should not eat meat offered to idols if their eating would cause a brother or sister to stumble. So this idea of the one bread and the one cup, and in, in Anabaptist history, uh, there are many references to the, these verses, to that verse of the one bread and cup, and the idea that a loaf of bread is is made up of many kernels of crushed grain. And this is what makes a loaf of bread. And a loaf of bread is not made up of one kernel, and the body of Christ is not made up of one person. And, and a cup of wine or juice is not composed of one grape. It is many grapes that have been crushed, and the bread is many kernels that have been crushed. And and in Anabaptist history, this, this has often been mentioned, referred to as a picture of the body of Christ, an illustration that the the bread and the juice themselves illustrate illustrate the the uh, common participation of each person in the body of Christ that we are not free to just um, live our lives in uh, seclusion and alone, but we, we are um, meshed together. So I want to make some summary comments here yet. Uh, I believe scripture teaches that Jesus lives in our hearts and is present in and with us all the time by the power of the Holy Spirit. Uh, we have Colossians 1. I want to elaborate on that just a moment. Uh, Colossians 1, 26, 27, the mystery which has been hidden from ages and from generations, but now has been revealed to his saints to whom God willed to make known what are the riches of the glory of this mystery among the Gentiles, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. And the idea there is that uh, this, this is the mystery from 
that was uh, uh, given to Abraham already that that um, he would have people of faith belong to his family of faith who would not be of his physical family. They would not be Jews. They would be Gentiles. This is the mystery. And how is this to happen? Well, it, it is Christ. Christ. Christ is the one that makes this mystery possible. And it's in the uh, trusting, believing in Christ of all people, of all nations and kindreds um, that makes it possible for Abraham's family and God's family of faith to be composed of all of these people. And it's a mystery. How is this possible? Well, that's the answer to the mystery. It is Jesus. And... And in this mystery, it's a mystery that Jesus, uh, the head of this family, lives in each one. And then Romans 8, 9, and 10, But you are not in the flesh, but in the spirit. If indeed the spirit of God dwells in you. Now, if anyone does not have the spirit of Christ, he is not his. And if Christ is in you, the body is dead because of sin, but the spirit is life because of righteousness. I'm not going to comment on the last several phrases. Um, so these verses teach that the mystery of the gospel is that Jesus can dwell in Gentiles, that they are invited to belong to God through the death and resurrection and indwelling of Jesus Christ. These verses also say that the Spirit of God, the Holy Spirit, dwells in believers and also that the Spirit of Christ, and I don't ask me to explain all this, I don't know, the Holy Spirit dwells in believers. The Spirit of Christ dwells in believers. And Christ dwells in believers. All of that. And I believe Scripture teaches that Jesus Christ is present when we partake of the Lord's Supper. He cannot be less present when we partake of the Lord's Supper than he is at other times. He cannot be. And I also want to say that Jesus Christ is present as we observe the Lord's Supper because he is present inside of us. And because he is certainly present when the church obeys his command to celebrate the breaking of his body and the shedding of his blood. So I'm going to use maybe poor English and say that Jesus cannot not be present when believers partake of the Lord's Supper that he instituted. And the least we can say, and I believe must say, is that Jesus Christ is spiritually, not physically, present in us and in our midst when we partake of the Lord's Supper.
And I want to, uh, I want us to think a little bit about Koinonia with Jesus. Um, so I'm going to ask a few questions, and when I pray, I'm going to refer to these. Is my heart in fellowship with Jesus this morning? I'm not talking about perfect fellowship, but do I have a love relationship with Jesus? Do I feel grateful to Jesus for bearing my sins to the cross and forgiving me? Am I remembering to yield the daily circumstances of my life to Jesus each day? I don't mean perfectly. We can't do that unless we think about it. Am I remembering to yield the daily circumstances of my life to Jesus each day, to die and resurrect with Christ in each event of my life? And if I've not been remembering to do that, uh, can I give Jesus permission this morning to work in my heart so that I can grow in my ability to do this? I mean, that, that's, that's really the way we grow in anything spiritual. And then, of course, we have this issue, question of our koinonia with others. And uh, is my heart in fellowship with others? And I believe it's possible to to be in fellowship with people around us that we don't 100% understand or agree with. I think that's possible. Of course, maybe what that requires is that we... Uh, decide that it's okay if, if, if they don't see everything the way we do. And that, and that is, that is how life is. It's true for believers too. And can that be okay? Um, perhaps in our differences we feel sat on and controlled and like everyone else can have their belief and have their voice, but I cannot. I know people who feel that way. And uh, there's not a single person in this room who has not felt this way at some point. That's my guess. Um, so I would like to suggest that uh, when we pray, we can give Jesus permission to work in our heart, to give us insight and wisdom in these things, um, give him permission to give us rest in our heart um, to do a work that we can't just do for ourselves. Um, 